brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. Episode 326, Jack Devine is here in studio, former acting director and associate director of the CIA's operations outside the U.S. Over 30 years in the CIA, and the last time we had you on was episode 309. And for those who don't know, Jack's the author of Good Hunting, also the president and and founder of the Arkin Group. Yeah, uh, my partner and I, Stanley Arkin, and I founded the... uh the Arkin Group, uh, almost 17 years ago. Well, have been in business a long time. The, the last time you were on, people were raving about your history and your knowledge. I mean, 30-plus years in the CIA, there's so much to talk about, so we had to have you back in studio, and this time with Jack Murphy. We have a lot of guys on the show who kind of work where the rubber meets the asphalt, and then all those ground pounders out there. It's kind of rare that we actually have somebody who worked, you know, high up at the level that you did, you know, in an organization like the CIA. So this is really a, a privilege for us. Well, Jack, just so everyone understands, I didn't start at the top. I know. I started I know. at the very <laughs> bottom, uh, and I'm, I'm glad to say that. Um, the other thing that I think might be of interest to the listeners is that most CIA people can't really talk. They're, yeah. They worked in clandestine operations the whole time their assets are still alive or the operations remain sem- uh, uh, sensitive. My career is uh, a bit different than uh, certainly the vast majority in that half of my career was in the action part. So I certainly ran operations. Was paramilitary programs. But uh, covert action, political and paramilitary programs. And a number of things that I touched became public. Those types of activities worked their way in the newspaper. Chile, when Allende was in, the Afghan program to drive the Russians out, the Iran-Contra affair, which we can you know, go into all these different things. When they become public, you're now part of the, the record. You're part of the history books. So, and Rick Ames, you know, I knew Ames, the spy inside the CIA. I was listening to that, the previous podcast uh, that you did before with Ian, and, I mean, that's just chilling. You said you went to his wedding? Well, uh, I did go to his wedding um, and, you know, I have uh, um, good recollection of my early time with him. He's actually the first official in CIA. He's two years ahead of me, I think, or a year and a half in the process of going through. And his uh, family, he was a, uh, what we would call CIA brat. He was, his father was a He was CIA. a legacy baby. He was a baby of a father who was in the CIA. I'm not sure it's like we would call it a legacy. But um, Rick was, you know, a staunch anti-communist, believed in uh, going against the Russians and particularly looking for moles. I mean, there's an ironiness, of course. 
but as I, I mentioned last time, uh, he underperformed as an officer throughout his career, and eventually he fell behind his peers. You mentioned how it creates a kind of um, <clears throat> resentment for the organization that they work for, that they, they feel they have not been promoted as quickly as they should have. Right, and it leads to dissatisfaction and disgruntled workers. There's a lot of disgruntled workers, uh, I'm sure, even in your sure. operations, but they don't always become defectors you know, right. or, or traitors. So, but when you have that uh, laziness and you have uh, uh, you become disenchanted with the mission of your country, then you become very vulnerable. Frankly, on our side of the operating table, uh, we would look at the Russians and the Chinese and the Cubans and in the Cold War, and we would be looking for the same those types of characteristics. People that were Vulnerable. disenchanted with the system, not doing well in the system, were the subject of prejudice within the system, and they often provided uh, great uh, targets for recruitment. While we have you here, because I, I've been reading your book, and um, you talk about a lot of these different paramilitary actions that you had involvement with, and I was just wondering if I could get you to kind of reflect on your background and contextualize what was happening during this time period, sort of the twilight years of the Cold War, that we had a paramilitary program in Afghanistan, Angola, Central America. Could you, I mean, I think for the public, they see this as a big proxy war between the Soviet Union and the United States, which was true. But I was wondering if you could kind of inform us and, and understand how these different programs related to one another and, you know, what the, the um, mentality, the culture was at the time. I will drift to that. <laughs> well, let me just start with one thought because sure. uh, I've been thinking a great deal about it. Uh, I'm reading Ulysses S. Grant, the, uh, the number one bestseller right now, and I'm not putting a plug in for it per se. But uh, what I find fascinating, you can get worn down in each of the battles, you know, Vicksburgs and Gettysburg, and they're all fascinating in their own right. But when, you, when I stood back, I realized that some of Grant's real strengths was he was a, a quartermaster. You know, he had quartermaster experience. Logistics. Logistics. I've come to believe over, over the years of looking at operations that you know you need brave warriors for sure and good, good weapons, but the logistical support of any operation, the mechanics of it are terribly important. So when you look at these covert action operations you're talking about, and when you think of Afghanistan, I mean you're talking about 120,000 uh, insurgents or fighters, you know that we were. Uh, uh, working with. You've got to find weapons for them. You have to deliver those weapons. You have to pick the right weapons. You need medical supplies. You need to think about how they get fed. So there is a huge logistical trail that supports even the paramilitary operations. Now, this is different than 20 special forces, people jumping in somewhere, quick op and out. When you have a sustained insurgency, the unsung heroes, um, and this is, I, I suspect, true in all aspects of the military and uh, covert action operations, are the logistics people. I mean, things just don't get done. So if I were called in to run an operation today, I would say, well, who's my logistics chief? You know, I want to get the best one we can to make this, this happen. So the beauty of the Afghan program, coming to your point, was you really looked at uh, 
a little over 100 American officers involved in the entire operation, and that is uh, an amazingly small number. So you have to leverage that. We had allies in the case of the Pakistanis that certainly were involved, but it had a low footprint. Right. It certainly hit the papers. It wasn't a clandestine war. It was more of a... Uh, Plausible deniability. Even that was stretching it, right? (laughs) When you're harming people and you put stinger missiles, it gets thinner and thinner. But it wasn't a direct U.S. US Russian confrontation. You avoided that. And you, uh, again, tried to keep it from becoming a them on us direct military confrontation. And there's much to be said for it. And I worry when we go into countries and we build permanent bases and occupying Like in Syria, for instance? Well, I mean, I think even if we go close to home, when we think of Afghanistan in more modern times, I think our special forces and the CIA teams are on the ground early that brought down the Taliban did a great job with a very small footprint. But once we decided to stay then I think all that infrastructure has to go in. And whether you want to make the government uh, have a better judicial system, voting system, you get into all of the dynamics of government building and you try and overlay it on a different culture, you're, you're biting off something much bigger than a, 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 you know, a strategic and tactical military operation. So I'm not a nation builder, as we discussed before, there was a point in time when I was working the Afghan war with Charlie Wilson. I dabbled with that as being maybe a possible uh, thing that maybe we should have stayed behind and done more. But as time has gone by, I really feel that um, you should do everything you can to be a permanent occupying occupying force. And I think uh, listening to one of uh, West Point's generals the other day, so one of the early adages that is drilled into West Point and says, you know, never invade Russia in the winter. <laughs> I get that one, ask Napoleon and, and Hitler. And, and Hitler. And the other one, uh, never invade Afghanistan, period. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now, I think we did absolutely the right thing going in and taking down the Taliban. Uh, it's, it's the occupying part. That's difficult. The building. It's, it seems we're not good at that. I don't think anybody is. I mean, I don't think, you know, it's hard to see where that has worked out. I, I would say one thing that was, but I think it's a very unique situation, is MacArthur's efforts in Japan yes, and, and our and efforts in, uh, in uh, the Marshall Plan in Western Europe are real models of, of success. But, you know, there were sophisticated societies. Um, you know, it was... Uh, uh, they had a history of the institutions of government. And they had a, and a very clear, uh, certainly in Western Europe, idea about uh, how governments and republicanism the, the, and things. You know, like you this. had democratic governments, and then you had fascism, and you know. So there's there was a history when you go into what we used to call the third world. Uh, you know, you're talking still today in Afghanistan tribalism, and when we leave. Uh, I mean, it would be not unsurprising to find out that everything drips back into sort of tribal uh, tribal setting, which gave special forces a, a leg up in the confrontation that you, you hire tribes, you know, to fight other tribes, and that's manageable. But if you decide to say, afterwards, to say, look, we're going to convert it into a democratic society, we're going to vote on this, 
and we, these are going to be the principles. Then immediately you get into fights. There was, um, you know, something I wanted to ask you because I think people are fairly familiar with the special forces role in the Afghan uh, the invasion after 9-11, but less people are familiar, I think, with the special forces role during your time when we were supplying stingers to the Mujahideen. I was wondering if you could speak well, to that Well, one of the things that happened, or, I mean, and you're much more expert on this, the history of the special forces. I mean, to many, in many ways, OSS during World War II was... Uh, special forces focused. But much of that paramilitary effort after uh, uh, the end of World War II resided in CIA. The mm-hmm. U.S. military was still largely traditional army on army. Uh, and the way the CIA handled it, uh, certainly up until uh, modern times being, uh, uh, let's say, the 1990s, um, uh, maybe even if, let me put it the, the first Iraq war um, the CIA had a paramilitary division and it was usually uh, folks who had served in you know special uh, in the uh, Green Berets in Vietnam and, yep. and so on and we'd had a skeleton force and then when something would happen and we Could would ramp need, it up we would uh, uh, succumb to the um, to the agency, a hundred young, twenty-year-olds, just out of training, uh, top-notch soldiers that could be put into civilian clothes and put into the paramilitary setting. But uh, I think when we got into the, such bigger operations, and it became actually a, a major way of fighting wars in in this century, uh, then the military uh, shifted very heavily towards special forces. So the CIA retained its element. But again, I do think it's built largely around uh, uh, seconding people to it on a short-term basis and then keeping the infrastructure. I, I've used the term erroneously. I've been corrected. Uh, sheep dipping. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not that you're placing them under CIA cover. It's not like that, that type of thing. They're, they are being seconded, as you say. It's a little bit different. It is, but I, I will just tell you it was fascinating to see... Uh, uh, a soldier assigned to the U.S. with a crew cut, and three weeks later, <laughs> well, this is. I, I, let me tell you a true story. Actually, it was a, a medic from the armed forces, and again, he had uh, uh, high tight. And um, I didn't see him for a couple of months, and then I went out to the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, and one of the Mujahideen fellows came over to me, beard and they said. <laughs> And it turned out hey, to be Jack. the medic. You know, he was dressed like him, the beard. I mean, he walked like him. I hadn't showered in a week or whatever. You know, so, um, and uh, in those days, uh, it seemed to me that the the, uh, the the soldiers enjoyed that role. Sure. Maybe not permanently, but I, I, I do think they took to it uh, naturally. Well, I mean, that's a quintessential special forces mission that everybody hopes they get to do. If you, you know, you wear a green beret, that's what you want to dress up like the locals. And <laughs> yeah, well, you'll see, even today, people have seen uh, some of the modern movies out, yeah, yeah. clips of our troops riding the horses up and I mean, you know, really uh, real warriors, you know, back to the days of Genghis Khan, you know. But they were really good. One of the things that I was thinking of uh, in terms of this tribalism. I remember the first time Charlie Wilson and I went out 
to meet with the tribes. And uh, Charlie had been out there before, and uh, I was new, newly assigned when we built the task force, but we had been operating out there for almost 10 years. And uh, I turned to Charlie and I said, geez, you know, you could cut the tension in this room with a, with a knife. I mean, it's, uh, you, it's palpable. And he said, well, Jack, you should have been here last year. We had to disarm each one of the tribes so they didn't go at it. Now, this was our team. This is our, our boys, so to speak. So, uh, but there's a lesson in it. I mean, uh, there are, you know, and again, you, you all have dealt with the tribal situation in real life. But if you go into an environment, you don't realize that it's tribal. It's, uh, and you don't understand big, the politics of the room. Yeah. And... And consequently, if you're talking about political action, you have to realize, I have to mobilize and bring them into one united group. I mean, look at the United States today. It's hard to get a consensus, even mm-hmm. among people with almost similar backgrounds. Well, so, then what do you, I mean, you said you're not really about nation building in that sense. I mean, what do you think more of um, people like Jim Gant, the special forces officer, who said, look, we got to go and engage each tribe independently of one another and treat it as a sort of loose confederation of tribal states rather than a nation state as we commonly think of it. Well, actually, I think that's what our special forces CIA people did in Afghanistan, bringing down the Taliban. Mm-hmm. They went in, took the different, the right, Northern right, Alliance, right. you know, and, and, and selected and it, tribes. It, it worked right. temporarily, anyway. And, and, well, I think it is about temporary. That's the because key. then we should be out. And then we should be out, and that's what I've been saying for a long time. But it's, um, you know, you have to live with the consequences of getting out. Right. You know, you're a lot right. of political heat because. Who lost Afghanistan, right? Well, so our objective was really to get the al-Qaeda and bin Laden. It wasn't to remake the Taliban because, frankly, that was not a strategic enemy of the United States. It just wasn't all that important to take on, to have our military there on a permanent yeah, basis. Yeah, no one cared about Afghanistan, right. really. So it was to, to uh, settle the score, very frankly, for 9-11, and we, we as a country, certainly wiped out three-fourths of the al-Qaeda. Uh, it's probably even higher today. Uh, Al-Qaeda element that were around in the day of the 9-11. So, I mean, retribution's there. Uh, and ever since, we've been running them into the ground. Well, what do you say then to the critics who would say, that in the 1980s we supported these Mujahideen who ended up becoming Islamists and that it, it spiraled into the Taliban. They ended up hosting al-Qaeda in their country. Uh, it, are there some possibilities we just can't foresee, or is this the cost of doing business and taking down a player like the Soviet Union? Oh, I think, again, I think you have to think, and I think it was a really good comment of yours, Jack, temporary and permanent. You have to decide going in, you know, uh, Colin Powell, you know, one of the great generals, saying, look, you exit go in. strategy. You ever have an exit, but you're going to own this thing, you know. Oh, the, so, the, you broke it, you bought you it. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> you have to have a day after. And uh, this is one of the troubles today, not to get off message here. But, you know, there's a school of thought that's appearing in the newspaper. And we need to give Iran and North Korea a bloody nose, get their attention. Now, the only thing I can say, these are people who've never been in a fight. I mean, you, you hit somebody in the face and you bloody nose. You better have thought about what's the next move right. here. You know, what? how does this end, you know? So uh, I'm not a big proponent of, uh, you know, I think you have to have a full game plan when you uh, go into these things. So let me dissect a little bit uh, the Afghan experience because that uh, criticism does 
certainly come out. But, you know, Afghanistan was uh, deeply uh, fundamentalist in the Islamic world before and af- after we were, uh, we were there. Um, what's really important for people to understand is the U.S. support to Mujahideen did not involve the Arabs. In other words, it wasn't any of the Saudis. It wasn't any of the Al-Qaeda. Oh, really? Right. Like Charlie so, Wilson's war will give you like a different picture. Charlie, yeah. I will tell you that the, the, there was, um, for example, in bin Laden's case, there's no documented indications that he ever received anything from us. Right. And I talked to Milt Bearden, who's you know, well-identified and has written a book uh, on the subject as well, that there might have been two reports of some minor uh, event that he was involved in. He like was a nobody tr- driving a truck or something. Well, I yeah. don't know if it was that. And I, I don't want to, you know, uh, I, I don't want to speak authoritatively, but it was not a major thing. You compare it to the he line, wasn't, he wasn't lying to the pass, yeah. uh, the uh, you, you think of Masood. Now, now, there's a real warrior, right? So, I, I'm what his involvement was at the margins. People don't realize that even. And this is, again, in the public domain. Half of the funding for this operation came from Saudi Arabia. So the United States and Saudi Arabia contributed to the, equally to the funding of the, of the operation. But the, there was independent funding from the Arab states to Arab fighters. Okay? So the Mujahideen were Afghans. And I don't remember dealing with, and certainly any reporting saying that we were supporting Arab fighters. Yeah, so right. this is a so this is a big distinction. Even when you get to the Taliban, the Taliban wasn't you know specifically targeting against the United States. Their foolish effort, and it's because of a, a, a marital relationship, as I remember, they were a safe haven for uh, right. for Bin Laden. But Bin Laden left. Afghanistan's after, uh, after the Russians, and he went to the Sudan. So he came back only after he was driven out. So when the Soviet Union left, when it fell apart, Al Qaeda, the terrorist group, so it was not there. So it's hard to draw a direct line and yeah. say, oh, the U.S. government created this. But I do think, um, and this is where, again, the bloody nose, you need to think about, to the degree that it's humanly possible, unintended consequences. To know the future. And you have to decide, well, are we going to stay and are we going to make it a democratic country? So we made the, a different decision this time. And as I said at the beginning, I wanted to make the same kind of decision that's been made in Afghanistan to build nation building. But after about 15 years of reflecting, looking back, I thought Charlie Wilson and I were wrong. That it was right to get out and move on to other targets mm-hmm. and then be prepared with a flexible special forces and see, to come back if need be. We actually said that on the last show, how it's courageous to come out there and say, yes, I was wrong, but it's got to be a hard thing to say when people's lives are at stake. Well, I think that's one of the... Uh, difficulties of talking about anything that relates to Afghanistan and Iraq today. It's not just that their lives are at stake in many other places where we don't have special forces. But it's also all of those that have paid such a dear price for um, you know, for running down Al-Qaeda and for 
bringing down the Taliban. I mean, there there is uh, real loss in human life, and there's been real loss of uh, treasure. Uh, treasure. So when one evaluates, there's that old adage, you know, you, you either learn from history, or, you know, you, to repeat or, it. Or you're going to repeat yeah. it. And um, and I, I think everyone reads it, but it doesn't apply to me, or it doesn't apply. In this case, and I worry that some of the lessons that we've learned more recently in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, we may we may not be paying full attention to those as we decide what we're going to do in North Korea and in uh, in Iran. Hope that you're all enjoying this interview with Jack Devine. Loved having Jack in studio, but um, just wanted to tell all of you about BioWave, who is new to the show, and they're great. Wouldn't it be great to feel pain-free like you used to feel? BioWave is the non-opioid effective way to block chronic or acute pain at the push of a button. VVA recognized, VA prescribed, FDA cleared, and made in America, BioWave is used by more than 30 VAs and even professional sports teams, which, by the way, I'm actually looking at the website right now, and teams in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, and Olympians are using BioWave, and there's some great testimonials on the site. Um, if you want to check out all of those brands that are using it, it's at BioWave.com slash customers, and all the testimonials are, are at uh, BioWave.com slash testimonials. And for the veterans in the audience, they're doing some amazing things. Um, I'm looking right here at BioWave.com slash VA. Healthcare providers in VA medical centers treat patients' chronic, acute, and post-operative pain conditions with a BioWave Pro neurostimulator. So uh, once again, if you're a veteran or active military that needs help managing pain, go to BioWave.com and learn how to get treatment at no cost. BioWave.com, smarter pain blocking technology. And let's get back to Jack Devine, CIA veteran for over 30 years. Well, I was wondering if I could just draw you back a little bit. In, um, because you headed up the Directorate of Operations, you're probably uniquely qualified to comment on this. The the CIA, their, at that time, global fight against what I guess we could call international communism all across the world. And, and I was wondering if you could comment on the strategy and how these different programs fit together in part of a strategy, if that's something you could talk about. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's interesting because I'm writing to it now, and maybe oh really okay. <laughs> so maybe we'll get to this uh, next year or whatever, <laughs> God willing. But I mean, when you go back to the roots of uh, the struggle, uh, you know, with the communists. Remember, they were our ally in World War II. I mean, we literally fought side by side. Stalin, we supplied it. Yeah. Uh, Russia lost. Uh, I think like my last re- re- recollection is 11 million people. Oh, it's like it. 50 divisions of soldiers. It's unreal. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's an incredible amount. And the fact that they would keep the Germans engaged in the east allowed us to uh, pound away on, on the western side. Having said that, once once <laughs> Hitler was out of the way, and, and look, no one was uh, a small percentage of the American population may have been hoodwinked by it, but most most of the people in the know understood that. You know, this was not an idealistic uh, reform-minded democratic group. <laughs> but we did look the other way on a lot of things they were doing, including in the espionage areas. I'm going back and reading history, um, and this is something that some of your readers may have read about. But um, 
you know, Whittaker Chambers was a communist in the United States um, and uh, a really top-end journalist. Uh, but he switched sides and reported it to the, I think it was Assistant Secretary of State at the time, who wrote a memo about Whittaker Chambers identifying other spies. And they ignored oh, it. Wow. And this was in the end, near the end of the World War II because they ignored it because uh, the Russians were our ally. Okay, so um, there was a, an, an intent to try and get along with Russia during that period. Now, General Patton, who I think you know has uh, carved his own place in history, was anti-communist uh, starting in 1940. So maybe <laughs> when he was born, so he was early on it. But finally, in 47, uh, Winston Churchill makes the famous. Uh, Iron Curtain. And, and the Berlin uh, Wall goes up in the 61, uh, I believe. It's later, but later. What, but what happens is there's also uh, the famous long letter written by George Kennan, and he was the, uh, in the embassy in Moscow at the time, and it talked about the need for a containment strategy, and people have been fighting over this ever since. And that was... Uh, Harry Truman, who was president, was the first president to really put on brass uh, knuckles to deal with the Russians, because by 47 it was clear they were in for a, a territorial grab and we were going to go toe-to-toe. So the strategy was basically to contain Russia everywhere or every, every place. And it actually worked as, I mean, part of what we were doing and the things I was involved in, I mean, in many ways... The Afghan war was not, I mean, we drove them out, but it's hard to find anybody that I knew then that thought we were going to drive them out. It was to contain them, lock them in, let them not take over a country if you can stop it. I mean, even actions like the Vietnam War. Well, it was all part of that. It also threw in the domino theory. And listen, I was a young person and it all made sense, but I think I would modify uh, some of that today. Do you think think Vietnam should have been a light footprint? covert action program and not the deployment of tens of thousands of American troops? Well, I think, you know, with the advantage of hindsight, of yeah, course, of course, you know, there's a lot of military officers that served and so on. It didn't work out so well, right? But I understand how we got in it. It was my generation that felt containment. If we lose Vietnam, there were others who felt that we didn't do enough, okay? So you're going to have historians... Uh, work on it. But you do get to my core view, is that the locals cannot take the fight to the enemy with what we can supply and support material weapons. If they're not committed or capable, then I don't think we try to force feed them. So then we we let them go and we move and find another partner for us elsewhere. I mean, you try and support them. This is what I would do if I I were looking. That's what we were doing in Afghanistan. That's what I would do in other parts of the world. You know, you can't make people turn into democracy. You can't make them be fighters. And this is why these training experiences that we've had in Iraq, and it looks like we've actually made some real progress in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but certainly for the first 10 years we put a lot of money in. And got very little out of it in terms of real combatants that were because it, they were taking the money because it was a way uh, a way of earning money, but when the shots were fired, they were gone because they didn't believe in it. 
So I, I think we have to be very cautious when we decide we are going to interfere. interfere. Now, I'm an interventionist, okay, an internationalist interventionist, but I, I, I really suggest that before you do that, you have really taken a set of rules, and this is where the last show we talked about, you know, just war. What are the conditions? And what are the conditions when you support? When do you get in the war? And I think that, that thoughtful process has to go in there, but part of it is, What's the prospects of being successful? You know, you really, in the theory of just war, you don't take on a, uh, an enemy unless you think there's a good prospect of winning. You don't gonna, you're not going to have an, a, uh, more lives lost than you save. Uh, well, you know. could, you, could you talk to that a, a little bit in terms of some of these actions um, like Angola, Afghanistan, I think, went over to the other side, but the aspect or the idea that it's not so much about victory, it's about denying the enemy, the Soviets in this case, an easy victory. Well, I think that's, I, I think that's true today. I mean, if, if I looked at, uh, when I, were not, I, I wouldn't be careful we don't jump ahead. I think we're headed to Cold War II. Okay. Really? Well, I think if we keep if, if, if we keep on the path we are today. When I say we, I'm talking Russia and the United States, right. and frankly, uh, you know, not being uh, uh, well, I am staunchly pro-American, but I, <laughs> what I'm going to say is, uh, no matter how I cut it, I mean, I see the culprit on this one uh, largely in the hands of the uh, the Russians and the nature of the relationship. I mean, mingling in. Our uh, political process is a new ball game, and that's got to be straightened out, or we are going to be counterpunching, and that then leads to more. And so, you know, you can drift into adversarial relationships. Well, I have to ask: Is it a, a new ball game? Because I, you know, we've had people on the show before who have said we interfere with elections all the time. I mean, you have the background to know. Is, I mean, is that uh, the truth? Uh, see, that the problem was being glib. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you have a microphone on, <laughs> and maybe I fit in this category, look, uh, I clearly was involved in interventions, right? But there was what I uh, describe as the Moscow rules. Now, if you get five Russian KGB guys and five Amer- uh, CIA, K- uh, CIA people, uh, you know, they may come up with a different set, all right? But the general principle was we are going to play within certain parameters in this game or we'll get uh, out of hand. So we weren't kidnapping Russians. They weren't kidnapping us. We were not uh, uh, counterfeiting their money. They weren't counterfeiting ours because the economic stability of the world would be uh, impacted upon it. Uh, I can think of no case after, let's say, the 1950s where we interfered in the internal process of democratic process in uh, in the uh, uh, Soviet Union. In the United States, there was the Communist Party, right? But this was sort of something that was had its roots in what was in our country we allowed to be part of uh, a legitimate democratic process. Now. Many of us were suspicious, but the head of the Communist Party was a KGB agent. <laughs> but that died a long time ago, right? But where someone, where you can find the footprint of Russians meddling in internal U.S. elections, or we interfered in their uh, system, where the President of the United States signs a, what they call a covert action order, saying, look, we're going to go in there and f- fiddle. I will just tell you, during my van, uh, my... Uh, 
my long experience in CIA, and it's not just when I was in charge of worldwide operations, but all of my readings of cases in the past, why we played in the rest of the world hardball, we were not uh, operating inside each other's countries. We were operating to get spies, but we weren't doing covert action. It's very dangerous for both parties to be involved in that. So this is a real different thing today that we're looking at. Where New I, rules. Well, I think the rules are broken, and now they need to be uh, reestablished. We need to have an understanding. I'm hopeful that the right people are having this, and it's not done in the public forum. It's in the back room how, between, how, how, between intelligence officers with their leadership's approval saying, look, is this how we are going to play this, or are we going to have some ground rules? And our position should be, you don't meddle in U.S. elections. If you're going to meddle, then we're, you need to understand we're going to respond. How would you assess modern Russia in 2018? I mean, do they have an end game, or are they just playing this day-to-day? Well, Jay, it's a big question. The first thing is I think people have to realize it's a small economy compared to— Very the, small. It doesn't have the force that it had in the, the, the heyday of, this, of the Soviet Union. And small population growth. Low population growth dependent on a single product, petroleum. Oil. You know, <laughs> so, you know, if— uh, as long as it stays under seventy-five dollars a barrel, a barrel, there there's real limitations there, and uh, the economic condition, the average Russian, is deteriorating. But b- before it has political impact, that has to deteriorate quite a bit. So, going toe to toe with the United States, I mean, again, it sounds uh, jingoistic here, but you know, there's no force, and look, you fellows in your audience are at the cutting edge. No, there's no force in the world that can match. U.S. forces, and either it's training, capabilities, technical, it's war material, war material, the amount of budget, time, and now we have an extremely experienced of armed forces have been fighting for 15 years in real combat activities. So when you put that, I mean, there's no military force, Chinese, Russians, take your pick, that can go toe-to-toe. Now, the nuclear problem uh, creates a dimension that, while well, you could have a nuclear war where you'd be even, but on the ground, uh, there's no, there's, for me, there's no uncertain outcome. Having said that, so we have, uh, when we look at the, the, the Putin uh, government, um, I was hoping when the wall came down, actually, was, uh, I need to clarify that the wall came down in 89, but the Soviet Union didn't fall apart until 91. I happened to be in Russia two months beforehand. There's no correlation, I would add. But, <laughs> but the, uh, the, the point is, I was hoping at that point we would, there would be a real push to bring Russia into the West. And that's, like bring them into the global system, I think, and NATO, and I think they rightfully belong in Europe. I mean, I think the Europeans are part, they should be part of that system. And for whatever set of reasons or uh, psychological and economic we didn't that didn't happen that was the thoughts of the big new brzezinski and others at least what they publicly stated but it didn't happen okay so i mean there were modest changes but over time as the economy collapsed you russians were going to go back to they don't have a history of democracy i mean the czars and their parliaments but you know their their experience in democracy is very limited 
So, and they do have a lot of experience and hardship, which is important when you think about what can they withstand. Right. But as a consequence, it became about Mother Russia again, and Putin represents the national interest of Mother Russia. And many of the things that he's doing, whether it's the Ukraine, the Crimea, um, are all rooted in protecting the interest of, of, of Russia. There's no communism. There's no ideology here that, that makes it a, yeah, a yeah. you know, so... They're not trying to br- spread centralized economies in Eastern Europe like they were, you know, 50 years ago. Right. But what I do see, which is, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, if you were in his shoes, maybe you'd feel differently about it. But, you know, they moved into Syria to great effect. In other words, they now have a position in the Middle East. They have developed a relationship with Iran because of some of the vacuum in, in uh, the Middle East. They've moved into Ukraine, Crimea. The pieces on the border are working well. However, now we're starting to see dabbling in the elections in other places. And I really question whether or not, uh, one has to remember, Putin is a product of Eastern Germany, KGB. He wasn't in London and Paris and Washington. He thinks like Marcus Wolf, the old East Mm. German spy (laughs) in black colors. And they were surveilling everyone. (laughs) And I don't think he was exaggerating in in one iota when he said, you know, it was a crushing blow, the collapse of the Soviet Union. He might not be a communist at heart, but the but defeat, he's a Russian nationalist. And, but he's also a case you know, that, that the service collapsed. The whole world that he lived in collapsed. So he's trying to reconstitute it without communism. So now it's this dabbling, the kind of Cold War dabbling, meddling, you know, and, uh, you know, there's, there's science that, you know, in Europe and in Latin America, you know, they're dabbling again in, uh, with uh, Venezuela, Mexico, some of the election yeah. uh, activity. It's like, what is, what is this? Are we really going to try and replicate the Cold War? The, I've been was, there. I know that. I, I, I've seen this before. And, you know, it's, um, it's a self-reinforcing dynamic yeah. so that, you know, they do it, we do it. Next thing you know, you're going toe-to-toe everywhere. And if that's what he wants... He better look in the mirror and realize he's working off a a very small platform compared to the U.S. So there's a writer on the site who said on a previous show something to the effect of that the the reason that that, um, Russia meddled in the elections had very little to do with getting Trump elected and was more about making it so that the American public loses faith in the electoral system, loses faith in a Republican form of democracy. I just want to hear your take on that because his feeling was... If Trump gets elected, big deal. We have four years, at the very most, eight years of change. That's not a, that's not a big end game. See, I don't think there is a big strategy here. Now, there is a school of thought that's uh, been well publicized in the United States that he's trying to destabilize the West. If so, he's not a chess player. He's not even a checkers player. Because if you go back and read history, a destabilized Europe is about the last thing that any sensible right. Russian <laughs> wants to uh, wants to see. I'm going to tell you an operational story that uh, when I was in Chile, when I first got there, um, I moved into a house and there were cats all over the neighborhood. And I said, why are there so many cats in this neighborhood? So I go in the office and I talk to the staff and I said, look, why are there all these cats in this 
Upper Kindo area where I am. And they said, wow, that's a, they all broke up laughing. Well, that was one of our great ops last month. We put an ad in the newspaper. And we said, you know, if you have a stray cat, bring it to the Russian embassy. You get two pesos. <laughs> so what did every campesino do? He took the cat, went to the door, knocked on the door, dropped down. I was a young kid. I went back to my desk and I thought, what is going on here? This is not operations. This is not thoughtful, strategic. What it's is like this prank. doing? What is this, you know? And this is a problem you see over and over again in the intelligence world, but it's probably also true in the armed forces in that you have a tool and you're just dying to use it. And I think to some degree, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton was annoying (laughs) Putin. Yeah. And they thought, well, I'll give her a little jab in the side. You know, we'll just not do it. They never dreamed, I think, that Trump was going to be elected in this thing. It is a small-time operation. A couple hundred thousand people will come in with statistics of how it... Uh, impact that uh, just a little covered. nudge here or there. But yeah. I've been around big operations. If you really wanted to stable the United States, it's not two hundred thousand. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, yeah. don't come into my office and say I'm going to destabilize the West and I got two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> to throw into it. So, what? And this is, goes really to the very beginning of our show about not thinking through unintended consequences. So now. It had no real effect. No state went. Right. You know, it's like, and what you have done is you've extended extensions. You've made it possible to have a president of the United States say, let's sit down and really warm this up, even though there was, a, I personally believe that was as long overdue. It, so their actions, this dropping cats in front of the, <laughs> the White House, has created a huge problem that I think is totally out of sync with uh, a strategic move. I don't know, I'm not sure they can see how they get themselves out of it. That so, they're in over their head, in a sense. Well, I think they've gotten in, and then the question is how to get out. And I think the getting out is, as I said earlier, there have to be private discussions. What are the ground rules in this new age of social media, and are we going to play games? And is that, is that, is that what this is all about, or are we going to try and do some you know, smart things together, and whether we, we work out arrangements in Iran or Syria and do some heavy lifting, or are we going to you know, drop cats all over the place? Did you have any concerns or do you have any concerns about uh, antagonism between the CIA and the Trump administration? I mean, a lot of noise has been made about that. Yeah, no, I've been asked uh, several times by that. I mean, I think people forget that it was the first place he visited. Yes. And I think that's partly because I think he was at the school of thought that this is an important element. He wanted to send a message. Um, the CIA people need to realize it's blessed <laughs> so in this regard. When someone is elected president, and someone's named the DC, the director of central intelligence, they don't show up at CIA with 100 political pointies. The most I've seen is four or five. It'll be the uh, general counsel's chief of staff. The CIA is run by career professionals. Now, I have a lot of time, a lot of respect for State Department. I know it's getting beaten around the years lately. But the difference with State is there are hundreds of important positions that are filled by political people. The FBI is very much like the CIA. It's run by professionals. 
So when you talk at the professional cadre, what do they want? They want strong leadership, effective leadership. Tell me what you want, I'm going to get it done. And if you looked at CIA, I honestly believe you would find that it's a replica of America's political orientation, which is 50% Republican, 50% Democrat, right? Maybe 2%, 2% up or down, right? So, and you don't bring it into the office. It's not political. It's unprofessional to bring in the office. So today... Um, uh, and I hope it's the same, that the rank and file, and say, let, let me get on with the job. You Politicians, you decide what it is you want done. The president's been elected. This is what you want done. We'll get it done. I would, uh, I think the problems are now that you have sort of politics at the top of some of these agencies, both the FBI and CIA, where you have statements back and forth that I, I don't think are doing anybody any good. I think the heads of those uh, agencies uh, you know, need, uh, need to stay out of the political fray as much as humanly possible. The FBI is going through a really rough time, no question about it. Um, and I hope these investigations get over and it can get back to its... It's real mission, but uh, it's, the, the morale I can't think is very can't be very good right now. CIA has gone through this where it becomes the sort of gets beat up after a covert action operation goes wrong, even though the political forces are signed up to it. So um, I, I don't I, I think it's probably overstated, and it's the difference between the workforce and what I would and call management. the political and, and the, the most senior management. And those, uh, we need we need the CIA, we need the FBI. Most people aren't in office a long time, even when they're anti-law enforcement, anti-military. When they come into those jobs, they realize, look, you really, you want you want <laughs> yeah. this world to function. You, you really, if you're going to play in this world game with other big states, you better have all the stool, tools of tradecraft and have a workforce. But politicization is really something that. Uh, um, is destructive. And uh, actually, one of the things interesting, and I, I don't mean to ramble on, I was fascinated on the Afghan program that both Republicans and Democrats were all in. Yeah. In other words, I, I recommend when you go into combat in any shape or form, paramilitary, straight on, military forces, you know, that you have a broad consensus at home. If you're fighting and you're politicized on an issue, it then has all this collateral damage uh, that takes years to put uh, put back together. Well, I, I know you have a hard out at 45 after the hour, and we're already going a little over time, so I just want to make sure we get all of Jack's plugs in here. Once again, president of the Arkin Group, which you can visit at thearkingroup.com. Jack Devine is on Twitter, at JackDevine underscore T-A-G. I know that you have to get out of here, so and Jack, do you want to... book. Yeah, the book good is hunting. Good Hunting. Um, so I, I was seeing if you have one last question I before you say, let this we, man go. Let, let's <laughs> give it your best. Give us your best question. All right, one one <laughs> one clear question to get us out. Uh, what do you think the CIA's uh, appropriate engagement should be with the American public? What should be the relationship between the U.S. citizen and our central intelligence agency? I mean, some people would lobby one for of, complete secrecy. I'm sure. One of the it's a really great question, and I'll tell you why. It's the one that. Uh, one of the reasons why I talk to uh, universities and uh, other places is it's not it's what's not well understood is that um, all covert action uh, as far back as I can uh, 
recall or have researched is approved by the President of the United States. And in (laughs) 73, it was by signature after the Church Commission. The the point is the CIA should only be engaged in the action part by the, the political will of this country. So if you elected a president, uh, you know, he becomes the driving force in this. Now, you got to get money out of Congress and, and so on. Many of my colleagues hate oversight, you know, and the truth of the matter is who wants oversight? You know, who wants to ask their parents to, you know, whether they can go out and use the family car or not. So the point, uh, the point that I'm making is I actually believe oversight is totally necessary, that you have to be able to go down and brief the Congress on your actions and get their approval. They represent the will of the people. So the CIA's interaction with America is through its will as represented by the process of legislature, uh, executive branch, and mindful of the laws of this country in the third uh, third branch. The CIA should never be involved in domestic operations in the United States involving Americans unless they're either a terrorist or Russian moles or what or Chinese moles, which are popular today. So my point is we, and the rules are clear, the CIA cannot meddle in the political process of the United States and should be put on the carpet and... Uh, disciplined if it ever wanders. As far as I know, my reading, there are only one occasion, and this was the during the James Angleton period, chaos during the <laughs> 60s where they crossed the line. It was recognized. I know of no other case. And then the only other cases where some CIA officers worked offline with the White House, um, but that was not the CIA. Like, oh, the, where they did not they did not stay within the confines of not meddling in uh, domestic politics or working off of a political uh, agenda. So the lines, now the lines on the FBI is quite different. Their job is to protect us internally. So um, my view is the CIA needs to look outward and uh, have the full support of the American people. If you don't have the support, then you probably shouldn't. You, no, not probably. Let me correct that. You shouldn't <laughs> be doing it, you know. So Well said. Well, Jack, we uh, just barely scratched the surface, uh, and I hope we can talk you into coming in again sometime. Well, the other thing worked well last time when you called me, too. I mean, you did it on the front. <laughs> I want to come down and you meet. You don't like I, seeing our no, faces I, Listen, I went down to come down and see who these guys, cool guys, are on the other end. You know? So no, thank yeah, you and for I went to come in. down. But, you know, we can handle a lot of times. It is, I mean, it's a bit of an encumbrance. And down the back, and it's like yeah, of a busy course. day. Some days it works, and some days it doesn't. But I, I do think you're doing a, a probably important, not me, but an important service out there for people listening and thanks again for coming in okay so keep up the good Thank work you very Clyde. much we really enjoyed having jack in studio a lot uh covered in this hour of soft rep radio as a reminder for all of those who are listening for a limited time you can receive a 50 percent discounted membership to soft rep tv our channel that offers the most exclusive shows documentaries and interviews covering the most exciting military content today soft rep tv's premier show training cell follows former special operations forces 
as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV. That's at softreptv.us. And take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All of the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've sent in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription, you're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. For those listening um, as we put this up, we'll be back on Friday with a brand new episode. As always, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. Follow us at SoftRep Radio. And we're out. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb. 